Hello, everyone. Welcome to Health Chatter. And our show today is on stroke and hopefully not having one. That's the idea. That's that's hopefully the, the final takeaway of the show. We have a great guest with us today, a really great colleague of mine. We'll get into that in, in a second. I'd like to highlight our great crew that, um, frankly, without their expertise, uh, Clarence and I would, would be lost. We've got a great research crew that does background research for us on every one of our shows, Maddie Levine-Wolf, Aaron Collins, DeAndra Howard, and Sheridan Nygaard. Thanks to all of you for helping us with getting some useful information that we can talk about. Matthew Campbell is our production manager who does all the logistics of making sure, technically making sure that our, our shows are in tip-top shape for you, the uh, the listening audience. And then, of course, um, I couldn't do any of this without my great colleague, and I really have to underscore that, uh, Clarence Jones. Clarence and I have known each other a long, long time, and um, we still... We still like each other for all the different things that we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we do we do disagree at times, but that's but but we you know we still give each other a good hug at the at the end. So it's uh it's wonderful having uh, Clarence as a as a colleague for our health chatter, and then of course their human partnership, which is a community organization that that Clarence is really intimately involved with, um, that helps. A lot of people in the African American community and around health, and they're our sponsor for uh, Health Chatter. And many, many thanks to them. You can see everything they do and get information about them at humanpartnership.org. Before you, before you go on, I want our listeners to know: human is not just for the African American community. Every man has hue. Hugh. All, hey. all of us have. All of us are human. H U E M A N. Right. Yes, right, yes, right. yes. So, so we all have know. a lot to talk about. We all have exactly things to say and how we can all help each other around many, many issues related mm-hmm. to health. So again, thank you. Thank you for to human partnership. Mm-hmm. So all right, today we're gonna talk about um a subject that's actually um, in my career was near and dear to my heart, although this has more to do with your brain. (laughs) It's called stroke. We're going to look at, we're going to talk about prevention, acute treatment, disease management, community initiatives, et cetera, with a great colleague of mine. And I have to really underscore this. um, Haitham Hussein, Dr. Haitham Hussein from uh, the University of Minnesota. Boy, I don't, I don't even know where to start. We've 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 been involved in, the, in in a lot of things, and and I really have to underscore your commitment to really providing insight and help and perspective around um, around this subject. Um, it, it's it's second to none. I just found out from from Hytham that he's presently the uh, president of the American Health Association in Minnesota here, and so thank you for for that as well. But originally, just for our listening audience, Doctor Sain was originally from Egypt, where he attended medical school and his first neurology residency at Ain Shams. Is am I correcting that right? Am I pronouncing that right? Ein Shams University in Cairo, and then moved to the United States and did a uh, residency here at the University of uh, of Minnesota. He's a a second to none clinician and educator and and researcher. Um, I can only imagine if I if I if any of us, God forbid, had to have a stroke, having having Doctor Sena is is our physician would be. Really, really, really. Don't say that. Good, good. Don't yeah, I, I don't want to have it. None of us want to have it, but not a bad doc to have to treat you. <laughs> uh, he's co-authored over 70 peer-reviewed articles and involved with contributing to textbooks, etc. 
he was actively, I still and, and still is actively involved in the Cardiovascular Health Alliance at the uh, Minnesota Department of Health. So many, many thanks for for being with us. I we we really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, uh, Stan and uh, and Clarence for having me. Um, I look up to you. Uh, you um, not because you're old. But because <laughs> and uh, how nice you always make your hair. So I am trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If yeah, you know, for all the listening audience, we do this. We record these shows on Zoom, and if you could all all see us, we have um, a little bit of a reflection off of <laughs> yeah. Clarence's head, my yeah. head, yeah. and Hytham's head. So yeah. we have something in common here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for that. Anyway, okay, so let's talk about stroke. All right, um, we're gonna do some, you know, I thought might what might be good is to provide the audience with some basic information, and then uh, then we can get kind of into the, to the uh, nitty gritty. So um, first of all, what, is exactly what is a stroke most people i guess will respond to it when they have one or somebody close to them has one but knowing ahead of time what it is and what you should be aware of i think is important so let's start there hytham yes thank you for the question uh stan this is absolutely important Stroke happens when there is damage to the brain because of something wrong with the blood supply to the brain. There are different kinds of stroke. Ischemic stroke is when there is a blockage of an artery uh, that takes the blood to a part of the brain. So that part of the brain then loses blood supply and suffers the damage which we call ischemic stroke. The other kind is when the arteries burst or rupture. If the rupture is within the brain tissue, that is called intracerebral hemorrhage or hemorrhage within the brain. And if the rupture happens outside the brain uh, tissue, then the blood is on the surface of the brain or around the brain. That's called subarachnoid hemorrhage. So these are the three different types of stroke. And then there's also TIA or transient ischemic attack. This happens when the artery in uh, going to the brain is blocked, but then the blockage is temporary and opens on its own so that the blood supply is restored without leaving any damage to the brain. So the person would have stroke symptoms for 15 minutes or half hour or an hour, and then the symptoms would subside completely. So let uh, me let me ask you something. All right, so um, of the types that you just talked about, is there one that's more serious? Yes, the, um, the most common type is the ischemic stroke type, which is about 80% or even more uh, in, in Minnesota here, 85% uh, of all stroke is ischemic stroke, blockage uh, inside an artery. Uh, but the more dangerous type is the subarachnoid hemorrhage type, when the bleeding is on the surface or around the brain. The mortality rate is highest uh, in that type. So, um, Clarence, what, what, what do you think? Of, you know, you know, we've yeah. all known somebody that's had a had a stroke. Um, you know, unfortunately. Um, so Clarence, yeah, so from kick, my kick in here, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, from my perspective, you know, I, I, I am one of those more seasoned people, uh, doctor, just so you know that. Uh, <laughs> uh but in, in my in my community, uh, we talk about stroke as though it's normal, and uh, you know, we know people that had strokes and they, yeah, they, they, they had a stroke, you know, and so, uh, what are there signs that people receive that the body gives off before a impending stroke is one of the things that I want to know. And then the other thing that I, I want to know is what are the real basic things that we should know about strokes and how to prevent them? 
because again, you know, when I talk about certain communities, you know, it's just like we accept it as just a fact of life without thinking that there's any any way for us to avoid them. Or so anyway, so those are those are my kind of my my mishmash of questions. Okay. Um, so starting with the stroke warning signs. <clears throat> so when uh, stroke happens, uh, first of all, we don't know uh, if it's the ischemic type, the blockage type, or the bleeding type. Mm -hmm. the, the doctors can't know without getting a picture, a CT scan of the head. Um, so you can apply these warning signs to all different types of stroke. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we talk about uh, the acronym BEFAST, B-E-F-A-S-T. Um, and they, they kind of, um, a way to remember the stroke warning signs. So weakness of uh, one of the arms, one of the legs, or one side of the body without pain, uh, numbness or loss of sensation, again, one side of the body or one of the arm and face on the same side or um, a leg. Uh, loss of ability to speak uh, or loss of ability to understand when someone is uh, is uh, talking to you, uh, slurring of the speech, uh, people talk as if their tongue is heavy or they're drunk, um, in the droopiness of the face, uh, loss of vision in one eye, painless blindness in one eye can be a stroke symptom or both eyes do not see one half of the visual field uh, and uh, loss of ability to walk, loss of balance. Uh, severe headache uh, is uh, a common symptom when there is rupture or a burst of an artery inside the head and a decreased level of consciousness so people become suddenly sleepy or drowsy. Um, these are the common stroke warning signs. And uh, we want people to call 911 right away when they are experiencing or they're seeing someone experiencing stroke warning signs, weakness, numbness, uh, facial droop, uh, speech difficulty, uh, loss of balance, uh, vision change, uh, or decreased level of consciousness or becoming sleepy and lethargic. And uh, calling 911 uh, before you call your doctor's office and before you call your uh, friend or before you call your son to tell them that something is wrong, you call 911 first. Uh, and the, the value of that isn't just because, you know, you get the paramedics right away and... Uh, they drive fast and bring you to the hospital. They also call us when they mm -hmm. are at the scene or on the way. They call the hospital and they tell us that we think there is a stroke person coming to your hospital. So we run down to the door and wait for the stroke, uh, potential stroke patient and take them from the ambulance directly to the emergency room. No triage, no delay. Um, and so that gives a lot of benefit to the patient and the treating team when we get that uh, heads up from the ambulance. Uh, so you always combine talking about the warning signs with what to do when, yeah. the, when there yeah. is a stroke. They have to be together, set together. That's why it, we call it B fast. B for balance, E for I, F for face, A for uh, arm, arm weakness, mm -hmm. uh, S um, for speech, and T means time to call 911. Be yeah. fast. So let me ask you that. something. You know, it's like, okay, um, first of all, a, a person uh, wouldn't necessarily experience all those symptoms. Okay, um, so let me give let me play something out. All of a sudden, um, you lose vision or half of your vision in an eye. Okay, so how do you know how how would how would a person know if it's not like, hey, I should be calling my ophthalmologist 
because you know I might be experiencing a detached retina as opposed to, in this case, a stroke. So there could be some potential confusion on yeah, the symptoms, I right? I And I get that question a lot. And it's not your job, Stan, and it's not the patient's job to make the diagnosis. It's, um, it, it, that's something that we can only find out when you are in the emergency room. And if it is a stroke in the eye, that means that a person is at very high risk of having a stroke of the brain in the next 24 hours. Okay. Right? And there are ways to treat stroke in the eye. And so if we can help you preserve the vision, uh, then um, it's just no way to know if it's a stroke or not. That, yeah, that's the yeah question. right. And we do not expect anyone to know. And suspicion is good enough. If you suspect, <laughs> right. yes. If that's you great. suspect that's a good that you, you or someone you see in front of you is having a stroke, you don't need to be sure. Suspicion is good enough. Just come to us and we will figure it out. That's what I'm saying. That, I that's a thank great you. point. Yeah, I want to thank you for your 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 previous explanation. Uh, because as you were talking about that, you were listing all those various things. I think that, and again, I'm coming from a community perspective, many times people might be experiencing some of those things and they're afraid of uh, calling the 911 because of the ambulance and the cost that they might occur. Okay, so let's let's yeah. put that out there. That, yeah. that 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 is some of the some of the fear factors that we have. You just talked mm -hmm. about the fact that, you know, it's not our job to analyze. Right. Our job is to just call and to and to get those things on. So I just want to make that comment. Thank you. Because I, I think the way that you explain that uh is very, very helpful for me. But also I think when people listen to this uh program and they hear that, there will be less hesitancy about thinking that you have a homemade remedy that could address that issue. So that was my thought. Right. We say we we talk about it this way because of how hopeful we have become about reversing the effects of stroke. You know, uh, in the mid-90s, I went to medical school in 1993. That's how long it was. And back <laughs> then, there was no treatment for stroke. And in 1995 came the first uh, medication right. that we give uh, through the vein, IV, that can open up uh, clogged blood vessels, restore the blood flow to the brain uh, before the damage of uh, stroke uh, sets in. And so we can reperfuse, re resupply that part of the brain with blood and prevent the damage or minimize the damage of stroke. And uh, then uh, in 2015, so from 1995 was only treatment is that injection uh, until 2015 when we had evidence that doing a minimally invasive procedure, uh, we go with thin wires and tubes and catheters inside the arteries of the brain to pull out blood clots from the big arteries of the brain. That's a procedure called mechanical thrombectomy. Now we have evidence that mechanical thrombectomy also improves the outcome of stroke, so reverses the effects of stroke before they set, settle. And because we have these two treatments, we are so hopeful that we can help everyone with stroke before they get the, the, the maximum damage that, that they can get from their stroke. So we always plead to everyone, if you have stroke warning signs, or if you see someone with stroke warning signs, don't hesitate, don't question it. Of course, you don't know if it is a stroke or not. Even I won't know when I first see you, I have to get a CT scan of the head and do other things. But because we know that we have these treatments and they are effective, so please come as soon as you can. Every minute counts. For every one minute, the treatment uh, of stroke is delayed, Two million brain cells die. Wow. Yeah. So, well, you know, Doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So, one of the things that I want to tell you why I think that this is important is because, you know, we kind of make jokes about the fact that we're seasoned. Uh, 
But you just said it was only in 1995 when people started, you know, the first uh, preventative kind of thing. So a lot of us who have were born in the 1950s and the 40s, we have a long, long history of not thinking that there was anything that we could do about this. You know, that there, there was no medical uh, procedure that could help it. And then you just said 2015. I mean, so this is why this kind of this kind of conversation is so important, is because for many of us who are more seasoned, we don't have this history of learning about the uh, the impact of stroke, and we just think that it's just normal. Yeah, and that's you know, why I appreciate the the podcast, Clarence, and that you're uh, hosting me, and we're talking about this. We have to spread the word, especially in our communities of uh, of racial uh, minorities, ethnic mm -hmm. minorities. We've, uh, and we will talk about this, I'm sure. Yeah. You you mentioned about your community, your African-American community. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is true that it is disproportionately afflicted by stroke uh, compared to other communities. And um, not only that the number of strokes that the African-American community suffers from is higher, but it also happens earlier in life and more severe and tends to recur and is a major source of uh, disability and loss of function in the African-American community. And uh, in the studies that uh, we and others uh, did and are doing shows more delay in the African-American community and in racial minorities in general. There is more reluctance to come to the hospital. There's more delay. So we that part about community education and we have to get you to come to us first before we start treatment. And if you're late, right. these treatments I told you about, these two different ways of treatment, each of them has a time window. Yeah, they're less effective if you lose injection. time. Yeah, we cannot give that injection after four and a half hours from the time the person was lost normal. We cannot do these, these procedures after a certain number of hours as well. And so if you're, if you're coming late, you are also limiting your own options of getting the treatment. Yeah. So it isn't only identifying the symptoms. And I know that in the African-American community, there's a lot of experience with stroke. You yeah. probably recognize it easy. But then what to do and how fast you got to react to it is what we need to stress on over and over. And I agree that the financial burden of calling 911 is on everyone's mind. And it's a true barrier. Uh, but you, you have to think of the disability that the stroke can cause. And then the, the, the impact of the disability on a person uh, financially and psychologically um, and mentally. And so weighing the two together, I think there's no no doubt that seeking immediate care when there There's is a way to go. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah. so here, here's an interesting um, comment. Um, a, a lot of people are reticent to um, call 911 or go in an ambulance or, or this type of thing. Some people even, you know, Elderly people will often say things like, you know, an ambulance is really for a real, real bad emergency. Yeah. yeah. Okay. A real bad emergency somewhere, you know, there's whatever. But, you know, I'm just, you know, myself, you know, it's no, you know, I'll get to the hospital if I need to, et cetera. Our point, one of the major points so far in this discussion is that's not correct. <laughs> okay. What's correct is 911 is for any kind of an emergency and this could is an emergency get in and you know what <laughs> worry about all the expense stuff later you know that could be all siphoned out okay expenses aren't life threatening what are life threatening is the are the are the the symptoms that you're having at this particular point so let, let all right so We've kind of been focusing our conversation on um, identification and 
acute treatment. Let's go into the another theme here of stroke and namely prevention. So, all right, so nobody's, let's just say for, for a moment, whoever's listening, you're not, you don't have any symptoms and all this kind of good stuff, but how is it that we can truly prevent a stroke? Um, so, uh, stroke prevention, we talk about uh, the stroke risk factors. What are the conditions that uh, pave the way for having a stroke? Uh, there are um, modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. So a person's age, for example, is a non-modifiable risk factor. There is genetics. Of, yeah, increased risk of stroke with age. Mm -hmm. uh, being a man or a woman, the biological differences can also be there. Family history is mm -hmm. important. But these are a few. Most of the risk factors for stroke are modifiable, are under our control. And mm -hmm. that's what we need to talk to people about. High blood pressure is the most important risk factor for stroke. So um, knowing uh, what your blood pressure is, having uh, regular uh, checkups uh, with a primary uh, doctor or a primary provider, uh, and also knowing what is high blood pressure, what is normal blood pressure, what number when you get, you feel good, oh, my blood pressure is good, and what number when you get, you feel bad. But this knowledge is important. We want people to know that good blood pressure is one less than 120 over 80. Uh, and every time we check blood pressure, we get two numbers, a top number and a bottom number. Mm -hmm. The top number is called systolic blood pressure and the bottom diastolic blood pressure. You don't have to remember the names, but you have to know the numbers and what you're aiming for and what your blood pressure is. And the, the trick is that blood pressure is silent. People have high blood pressure for years and years. Are they not aware of it? It does not give symptoms. Occasionally, sometimes people would get like a headache or something, but for the most part, high blood pressure is silent. And the things that are tied to high blood pressure, like smoking, a uh, huge deal, uh, you know, smoking. And, um, you know, in... Uh, um, in the Midwest, uh, you know, maybe we're um, a little fortunate, but uh, smoking remains a major issue mm -hmm. um, in terms of stroke risk because it's tied to blood pressure. Too much caffeine increases blood pressure. So you have to be careful uh, with how much caffeine you take, especially, you know, energy drinks, uh, all that crazy stuff, you know, with mm -hmm. the ton of caffeine. Uh, and also sleep. Because sleep is related to blood pressure, and it has emerged now as one of the important risk factors for stroke. People with sleep apnea, it's a breathing issue that happens during sleep. Uh, when, when people fall asleep, the airway that allows the air to go to the lungs sometimes collapses. The muscles of the throat relax, so the palate and the tongue can kind of collapse on each other and people start snoring. And sometimes there's a, and people not breathing for a few seconds and then and another breath. So that, that's a period of apnea. And the problem with sleep apnea is that it lowers the blood oxygen level while the person is sleeping. And the person does not feel that, but their body perceives that low oxygen as a stressful situation. So then stress hormones are released in their bodies and they don't know it and they don't feel it like adrenaline. And they then their blood pressure is increased while they're sleeping and they don't know. And normally we have a drop, a natural drop in our blood pressure when we fall asleep. And people with sleep apnea lose that natural drop and their blood pressure remains as their wakefulness. And then as the condition progresses, they even have higher blood pressure when they're sleeping. And if you're checking your blood pressure, you check it when you first wake up. That's always I tell my patients. Check it first thing when you wake up in the morning before you take any pills and then some other time later in the day. 
And I always like to compare these two numbers. And people with sleep apnea will have higher blood pressure upon awakening in the morning. Mm. And so all the things tied to blood pressure, we have to really focus on and talk about. And it's not easy. Uh, you know, the amount of salt or sodium uh, that you take also impacts your blood pressure. So it has to do with what we eat, what we drink, uh, you know, exercise impacts blood pressure. People who exercise regularly have better blood pressure. And then, of course, uh, high uh, cholesterol is an important risk factor. And, uh, you know, it isn't always related to body weight. A lot of people have high cholesterol without being obese or overweight. So without checking, we won't know. So we have to have a primary doctor and we have to do these regular checkups to look at these risk factors. And they are the same risk factors for stroke are the same as those for heart attack. And now we know that there are also the same risk factors for dementia. Yeah, yeah. So you take care of your blood pressure, you protect your heart, you prevent stroke, and you sustain your memory. And um, other things uh, that are also modifiable uh, risk factor we, we touched on is the diet and the exercise. And... Um, and so to prevent stroke, it's, um, it's a matter of how um, we live our lives, you know, the, what we eat, what we drink, how much we exercise, how much we prioritize exercising, and we stay, you know, uh, consistent uh, with it, uh, avoiding uh, excessive uh, uh, caffeine intake, avoid excessive alcohol intake, alcohol increases blood pressure and also puts a strain on the heart, causing irregularity of the heart beating, which is another way people can have stroke. So uh, be kind of moderate in the consumption. No smoking ever at all. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And that so all let, let me, so here, here's, you know, the, just so everybody is clear, um, oftentimes more, we talk about cardio, vascular disease okay and what basically um what we're dealing with is heart disease and in this case brain disease if you if you want to look at it that way um and most people when they think of cardiovascular they only think about heart but the vascular part is really connected to heart and brain and the risk factors are complementary for both both arenas. The thing is, is that as you age, um, and you you mentioned this, there are certain things that are frankly inevitable. There are certain things that are going right. to catch up with you, one way or or the other. And 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 keeping having consistent, trusted care is also a major component for um for prevention and 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 not to compromise on that you know if you need it you should have a yearly checkup as you as you get as you get older if you're on medications <clears throat> you need to have medication management um and assessment um yes taking your your blood pressure more often than you did perhaps when you were in your 40s um Etc. So here's one thing I want to really kind of focus on. Have things gotten better? So let me give you a for instance. Um, you know, when I was heading up the cardiovascular unit for years and years, um, what was known as the stroke belt of the United States. Okay. And so for everybody, it's kind of a swath that runs from um, approximately Georgia, the state of Georgia, swinging down southeast and going west almost as far as um, Texas. First question out of the gate, Hytham, has the stroke belt changed? If so, has it gotten better? Do we still have 
a stroke belt where the incidence of stroke all those years I was involved um, was much higher, et cetera. Talk to us a little bit about the stroke belt. Yeah, um, <clears throat> there is a belt. I think there is a buckle too, like the <laughs> yeah. very center of it where the, yeah. And unfortunately <clears throat> it hasn't changed. It we hasn't. talk about the successes in uh, stroke and reducing stroke mortality over the last uh, 50 or 60 years. Mm -hmm. Remarkable improvement uh, in reducing stroke mortality. Uh, but there are some failures still. One failure is that kind of regional disparity difference. And there are still uh, parts of the country where the stroke mortality is higher. And uh, this is the South and, and the Southeast, like you said. Um, and the, the other uh, failure is that the gap between uh, men and women and uh, between white and non-white uh, uh, are still there. These gaps have not closed yet. There are some improvements, but still most gains were uh, made by white men and least gains made by black women. So what's so, going on? What's going on in this stroke belt? If nothing has really changed, what's going the on overall, down there? The, the overall outcomes improved in general for everybody. Yeah, yeah, but, right. Uh, but there are these uh, disparities that are still there. And uh, I think uh, part of it is the... Um, higher concentration of uh, African-Americans in uh, certain parts of the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, we talked before about uh, the higher uh, incidence of stroke in the African-American community. Uh, and um, also related to that is the uh, social determinants of health. So aside from the biology, if you correct for the blood pressure and the blood sugar and the cholesterol and all of that. Mm -hmm. And you look at social factors like uh, uh, income or uh, where a person lives or uh, having a steady job uh, or the, you know, the food they eat and, and how secure the food is and how healthy the food is and mm -hmm. um, the education, the yeah. years of education. And these are in independent predictors of stroke. And so if you fix all the medical, <clears throat> uh, biological uh, predictors, just being African-American increases your risk for stroke. Or just having that few uh, education years versus uh, you know higher education increases your risk for stroke. Or having that uh, yearly income increases your risk for stroke. And so, and, and that hasn't changed in the significantly in the stroke well, belt. Well, right? uh, and that's everywhere actually. There yeah, that's yep, our yep, studies. Yep. Yeah, yeah, there are studies that uh, gathered data from all over the country. Yeah, and these um, social determinants of health are very powerful. We yeah. just didn't know how to study them in the past, and now we're figuring out ways to identify them and study them, and we're we're shocked by how uh, impactful they are, how predictor they are, uh, you know, in terms of predicting stroke. Um, and so, um, you know, they have to do with access to care. They have mm -hmm. to do the quality even of the primary care provided is different. You know, when we compare our patients with stroke here in Minnesota uh, who have diabetes, and we look at how well diabetes was controlled before stroke, which we can find out using a blood test called hemoglobin A1C. Correct. Mm -hmm. So look at the hemoglobin A1C for stroke patients and compare white and non-white. Okay. White patients will have high A1C, not at target, so 7.5 or we, yeah. we always aim for less than 7.0%. Uh, but then you look at the non-white and you'll find that their A1C is 10. But, uh, in the cases of the Hmong, we just uh, published 13. Wow. And these are people who have known diabetes. 
right and have been on a diabetes medication but then their diabetes control wasn't good and there is a big difference between having primary care and having adequate good primary yeah. care Correct. right you can go in and out of the office and in 10 minutes and get a prescription and done and done you know and you just didn't learn anything you didn't understand what you're supposed to do no one really engaged with you and your family and shared with you what they're worried about what you what you can do to get yeah. to where you need to be so that adequate primary care is also a factor and uh it's it's also tied to the social determinants of health and uh our uh african american uh, uh community uh, you know our friends i don't think they get as good uh primary care as um as uh, whites yeah you know, Clarence. I'm, I'm, yeah 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 I, i'm really glad that you said that because I, I, I always think that people say say that community is always complaining you know what i mean and it's, it's like you know uh but i i think now that the research is coming out there are reasons why there is such a discrepancy uh, and there are reasons why we have such a, 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 a monetary impact, negatively monetary impact in terms of relates to health. And so I'm glad for the conversation that we're having, because I think that, number one, it's not accusing anybody of anything. It is about it's about taking a look at statistically what's going on and, uh, and how like, we can make things better. Yeah. And I like that whole idea about the adequate primary care is that. Uh, it is so important for us to understand that uh, many times people don't get that. I, the, the, what what really came to my mind was this, uh, as you were talking, doctor, was the fact that uh, in my 30s, I went to a clinic and uh, they gave, gave me a, a checkup, of course, and they said, oh, you, you, you're pre-diabetic. That's all he said to me. I when had no idea. When you were I, in your 30s. Yeah, I was in my 30s. I was like, like, so, you know, and I didn't think about it like I think about it now, but I, I I'm saying like if that's that's your 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 procedure or your protocol, uh, there's something wrong with that, and which is one of the reasons why we try so very hard to say and ask these questions and say how do we make this conversation so that it's bidirectional, so that people can really understand how they enter into this. And so I really appreciate the fact of how, what you have said today and how you said it because. I think that we will definitely use this particular, for me, I'm definitely going to use this particular uh, a program as a way to further inform my community. Because you said a lot of great things. So let me, you know, um, Hytham, Clarence and I did a, um, a health chatter show on trust. Uh-huh. You know, and um, what really, one of the major themes that came out of that is it's important to have a trusted provider of care that you connect with and have access to them in order for us to at least start addressing some of these things in as as a team effort between you the patient and you your physician and if you have trust it really really helps today's environment is a lot different you know it's like some some people see a different doctor every time they go in for for care and so that that level of trust is never really quite built up which i think personally i think is an important thing and a message that we all we all can do so here's here's the the other aspect of trust that or of of stroke that I want to um, address, and that's rehabilitation. So, all right. So we talked about acute treatment. We talk about prevention. Now let's say somebody has had a stroke and they're fortunate enough to have lived through it, but they've been affected by it. Okay. One way or the other. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, rehabilitation. Okay, well, um, before we talk about rehabilitation, can I just make a comment about trust? Absolutely. Um, we, um, I, I have a patient, uh, a friend of mine who our relationship started when he was a patient. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm sure he um, 
will listen to the podcast and um, and uh, smile, uh, you know, remembering what happened uh, between us. So um, is an African-American man, uh, a pro professional, well-to-do, came to one of our uh, hospitals with stroke symptoms. Fortunately, the stroke symptoms subsided very quickly. And um, he was admitted to the hospital. And he had an MRI, which did show that there was a stroke, which is an important thing. Sometimes mm -hmm. stroke symptoms would go away within a day. But when we get an MRI, we see evidence of damage to the brain, a small yeah. stroke. They were just lucky that they recovered quickly from it. And that is um, actually of a higher risk of having another stroke than someone with transient symptoms and we get an MRI and we don't see a stroke. Um, but... Um, uh, we also saw that he has severe blockage of one of the big arteries inside the head. Uh, the, the blockage is caused by a condition called hardening of the arteries or atherosclerosis yes. mm -hmm. and 70% uh, blocked artery. And so this is a situation where the risk of stroke is even highest. Yeah. Uh, people with this condition have uh, something like... Uh, eight or nine percent risk of recurrence in the first 30 days and 23 percent risk of recurrence in a year that wow. is just terribly high yeah. um, compared to other uh, types of stroke and so our stroke team wanted to uh, meet with him and talk to him about this and for because of a glitch the there are two teams that are in charge of the patient there's a hospitalist kind of the primary and then there is a consulting uh, team, neurology, and the patient was discharged before we went to see him. We'd given recommendations for the uh, for the hospitalist over the phone. And then when we realized that uh, he left before we saw him, we felt so bad because we really wanted to show the pictures and explain the seriousness of the situation and all of that. Uh, so we called him, it was not me on call on service, one of my colleagues. So he called uh, the, uh, that patient and he got upset and he refused to come back. And then he told me later wow. that I was thinking in my mind, oh, they let me go because I'm black. They didn't care. Wow. I had a 70% wow. blocked artery and they just let me go. And now they're calling me to tell me to come back. I'm not coming back. And and I brought him to the clinic, you know, a day later or something, and we sat down and we talked. And I think the fact that I'm brown and my last name is Hussein made made him more <laughs> receptive, and I explained the situation. And uh, he and I became good friends. And now he and I want to go and give talks to the African American community, Perfect. his friends, to share his experience and explain. Because he was doing everything right. He had a primary doctor, um, but um, the quality of that care wasn't good. His, his blood pressure was borderline high. It was not treated. He wow. had pre-diabetes. He had, uh, you know, all these things that, you know, had he, uh, who knows, but um, we really... He was were, lucky. He was yeah, lucky. Yeah, he was, On he, one side of the equation, he was lucky. Yeah. Yeah, but then wow. he told me and he explained that issue of trust that I was aware mm -hmm. of, but hearing it from the person who is living that environment, that life, and hearing what he was thinking, you know, and then he, we asked him to give us uh, lectures here at the Department of Neurology at the University of Minnesota. So he came and he talked to us and our trainees. Wow, good. And he, he told us that there's this history that uh, you cannot just think it, ignore, you cannot ignore. And uh, he advised us to just address the elephant in the room mm -hmm. and just acknowledge mm -hmm. right Great. off the bat that I know what happened to you and African-Americans. Mm -hmm. And the second thing you, you have to do is to commit. I am going to be your doctor and I will take care of you exactly you yeah, are my yeah. responsibility i'll take care of you okay and with these two things you can build a trust, trust. build a rapport you have to acknowledge what happened because the, what happened is you know 
long it's real. history. It's real. History yeah. Yeah. Doesn't go away. And it permeates yeah. in the conversations and you know with between the family members, you know, from the time when he was a little kid, seeing, you know, how his aunts and uncles and family and got sick and how they got treated. And you know what he told me one time, just tell me that you're gonna give me the stuff that you give the white guy. I'll be happy with yeah. that. Yeah. And you know wow. that's sad. That's that's very sad. And, and I, I thank you for saying that. I mean, that's building really, trust. Yeah, it's really it's really honest, and it is the experience that many people of communities of color have. And it's like it doesn't mean that the other person is necessarily bad. I think so many times about the fact that we're just conditioned sometimes to do certain things. For example, we were talking about the fact that you know uh, nurses and doctors are still taught that black people don't experience pain the way that white people do. You know. I mean, like, that's crazy, but but it, it is what we have to do. And that's one of the reasons why I like health chatter is that we can get into these non-political areas and say what we need to say. And hopefully people are hearing this. And so, you know, again, like I said before, I, I really appreciate what you have done today because it will be a, a you'll be one of my, my highly recommended uh, shows for people to come in and to listen. And uh, we would love to uh, have you and, and that gentleman come out to our communities uh -huh. and talk about that because we or have even that be on the show or even be on health chatter. Yeah. 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 We got, we got, we got lots, we got lots of, uh, he is, he is an awesome orator and, um, he has the ability to shock the audience. <laughs> okay. So, love it. So love it. Talk, talk a minute, just a minute, just, let's just take a minute about, um, rehabilitation rehab. Yes. rehab. Yeah. So the first thing we got to do is make sure that we have a stroke prevention plan. Okay. We don't want another stroke to happen. There you go. Okay? Yeah. And the stroke prevention plan depends on the reason why the stroke happened in the first place. Okay. So the stroke doctor always has to understand the stroke mechanism. And then the stroke prevention plan is dependent on that understanding. Okay, so that's one thing we don't want people as they recover to have. They to have another one, hit. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then uh, rehab historically has been focused on the physical recovery, and the idea is that if you have weakness of the arm, then you do physical therapy and occupational therapy to restore the strength yeah. of the arm and the use of the hand and and all of that. And speech and, therapy, if need be. Right, right. And then there's speech therapy for the difficulty with swallowing, which is commonly affected after stroke, yeah. as well as difficulty with uh, communication. Speaking can, there's a slurring of the speech that happens often. And there's also the difficulty with expression, that uh, symptom that we call aphasia. Yeah. Now, someone has an idea in his mind, how can it be translated into words? or being able to understand or being able to read and write. And so that's, you know, for speech therapy to work on. Uh, but the other aspects of rehab that we are getting more and more aware of uh, is the psychological aspect mm -hmm. and the cognitive aspect, okay? And and um, these, uh, you know, unfortunately have not been attended to uh, in the medical literature as much. Uh, so the tools to measure them and the ways to improve them after stroke are not as mature as in the physical uh, rehabilitation side of things. Uh, but, um, you know, people have different degrees of uh, impairment after stroke. Right. And, uh, you know, we we do an assessment and we see where the difficulties are. And then we tailor a rehab program for each one. Some people need to do only occupational therapy if they have loss of dexterity of the hand, but they don't need speech therapy or they And some people need only speech therapy if the, their only problem is language. Speech. And many yeah. times people will need two or all three of these uh, uh, types of uh, who coordinates all of this. So, right. it's like, so let's just say, let's play it out. Let's say I've had a stroke and I've been affected one way or the other. Does it start with you as a, as my neurologist 
and then then the team expands based on need or how how is it coordinated so that it becomes relatively easy for the patient to move forward most commonly patients are in the hospital okay and it's a requirement it's an expectation that any stroke person gets evaluated by uh, rehab physical therapy speech therapy occupational therapy in the hospital yeah and each of them has to do an assessment if there is an impairment how how bad the impairment is and then a plan how many sessions how many weeks or months uh, usually when there is a physical component, uh, people tend to go to a rehab facility. There are two different levels of rehabilitation. There is acute and subacute. Mm-hmm. or acute rehab is uh, for people who are able to do three hours of therapy a day. So it's kind of an intensive type of therapy. And uh, then the subacute rehab or what we call transitional care unit, TCU, is uh, for those who cannot do three hours, so yeah. maybe elderly or something like that. And then the people after stroke, after they discharge from the hospital, they go to a rehab facility for a few weeks until they kind of re- recover more of their function. And then there is a discharge plan then to home. And then there is an assessment of the home environment, the home situation. And if there is an any adjustment need to be made. Uh, say, for example, someone cannot walk upstairs. Maybe they can have their bedroom in the main floor or some some changes like that. And uh, making sure that there aren't anything to trip someone walking or yeah. you know and stuff. This kind of assessment, and then they go home. Some people don't have that much impairment after stroke to require going to rehab facility. Then these do uh, outpatient therapies. They go home. Yeah. And every other day they go to physical therapy sessions in the clinic right. or in the in the rehab center. So um, overall, I think what's important for our listening audience, everyone, uh, to know is this. There is good stroke care available mm-hmm. to all of us. Okay. 911 is something that has to be in everybody's minds and don't be afraid to use it. There are good prevention oriented things, especially if you're, if you by virtue of your family are perhaps at higher risk, but all of us can, can still exercise, eat right, watch our weight, watch our blood pressure, etc. And then unfortunately, if you, if you know of someone or yourself that has had a stroke, it's not the end of the world, okay? If you've lived through it, there are good rehabilitation facilities that can help you get back to a normal life. Um, This show has been very, very, very good. Um, Clarence, last, last comments? I was just writing into the chat box. Thank you. I think, uh, as I said, maybe <laughs> two, two or three times, this has really been a very interesting, thought-provoking program. And I just want to appreciate you and to thank you for your work, but also thank you for your offer of, of uh, helping the communities to become healthier. You are you're you're excellent at at providing um, clear and concise information about this subject and that's what health chatter is all about so hytham thank you you're you're a great great doc thank you very much uh, stan and clarence and i want to leave with a message of hope that we have treatments for stroke and, you and they're have getting better 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 early and so we can take care. and if you end up with a stroke the recovery is there and it happens. It takes time, but it happens to everyone. Everyone gets better. And there are ways that we can help you get even better. And uh, just stay uh, hopeful and uh, continue every day. The, the consistency in watching what you eat. What exactly. You exactly. Every day. That's every the hard day. work. 
<laughs> so everybody in our in our listening audience, thanks for listening in today. Like we tell all of our guests, Haitha, we reserve the the right to give you a call back. Or if you have other reasons to use Health Chatter as a venue to get some more messaging out, please, please contact us. So to everybody out in our listening audience, keep health chatting away. Hi, everyone. It's Matthew from Behind the Scenes. And I wanted to let everyone know that we have a new website up and running, healthchatterpodcast.com. You can go on there. You can interact with us. You can communicate with us. Send us a message. You can comment on each episode. You can rate us. Uh, and it's just another way for everyone to communicate with uh, Stan and Clarence and all of us at the Health Chatter team. So definitely check it out. Again, that's healthchatterpodcast.com. Thank you.